0: After Easter, a week after the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord, and what a great celebration it was, wasn't it? I hope it was special in your home. We had a house full of guests for Easter, and after church, and our guests came with us to church. They loved being at Apostles, and after church, we went home, and my wife, Sharon, made an amazing Easter dinner, the big old ham and all the delicious sides, and, and for dessert, Sharon made her incredible homemade key lime pie. And these slices were big. And and when dessert was finally served, I took a look at this, this pie and I thought, oh, I was in a quandary, you see, because lately I've been working hard at cutting down on sweets. But this was my wife's key lime pie. And so I reasoned to myself... And I thought, now, TJ, this is a special pie, nutritionally speaking, because I thought one slice of this key lime pie has only half the calories of two slices. (laughs) And so I ate that down with the satisfaction of knowing I was actually cutting back. So some of you may be adopting that logic for yourself. But that was just a small part of our family's joy of Easter. Easter should be joyful always. Easter is the the centerpiece of our faith. Easter changed history. The resurrection of Jesus changed the lives of his followers early on and still changes lives today, which was the essence of Michael's challenge to us last Sunday when he called us to remember the resurrection, and that's part of what we're going to be doing this morning. You see, the true impact of Easter wasn't just felt on that uh, on, on Sunday around the first of April each year, but rather the impact of Easter only just began on that Sunday morning in Jerusalem when the tomb was empty. What happened in the weeks and months? And even the years that followed showed the true impact of the resurrection on Jesus' followers. Which is why today, here, one week after Easter, when many churches are beginning brand new sermon series about things probably very unrelated to Easter, we're actually going to be digging deeper into it as we take a closer look at the life-changing power of the empty tomb. And the lives that were changed then and the lives that are still changed today. Okay? That's where we're going. So go with me. A couple weeks after Jesus rose, his followers had left Jerusalem and they had had trekked back north up into Galilee. And so it's there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee that John, the apostle and the gospel writer, writes his final chapter. Of the record of his gospel, it's recorded in John 21. So turn with me there, and take a look with me. It's a very intimate and powerful story of a life-changing encounter between Jesus and Peter. But and in John 21, we see one of the two of them had had many significant encounters over the years. But in John 21, we're going to see the life-altering impact of the risen Jesus in the life of Peter. We're also going to get a glimpse today into how that resurrection still changes our life today. So verse 1 of John 21 sets the stage for us. And it reads, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. By the way, I'm going to pause for a second here. I'm going to pause a good bit during some of my readings. But the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee and actually the Lake of Gennesaret, which they're all the same body of water. Three different names for the same body of water, but that's where we are. We're at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Okay, I'm going to push the pause button here before we go any further, because in order to appreciate the powerful significance of what's going to be taking place in Peter's life in this chapter, we need to set it up right. Okay? So we're going to go back quickly to another passage. This morning we're going to be looking at three different passages, primarily John 21, but we're going to go back in time to a couple different passages in Luke before returning to John 21. These are three passages that, that frame the panorama of Peter's relationship with Jesus. So, right now, we're gonna go back in time by about two and a half or three weeks. Rewind with me, and we're gonna drop in on a scene that's probably familiar to many of us. So, skip back into the Gospel of Luke. Skip to the Gospel of Luke, and right now, turn to, to chapter 22 as we drop in on what happened that fateful night, that night of Jesus' arrest, the night before he was crucified. Luke 22, beginning with verse 54. Then they seized Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him but he denied it saying woman i do not know him and a little later someone else saw him and said you also are one of them but peter said man i am not and after an interval of about an hour still another said certainly this man also was with him for he too is a galilean but peter said man i do not know what you're talking about and immediately while he was still speaking The rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked right at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine being Peter at that moment? Can you relate with Peter? You may not have ever publicly denied christ though maybe some of us have but have you ever experienced that that awful sense that you have totally failed god or totally disappointed him your circumstance could have been many different things but the end result was you felt crushed because you felt as if you had disappointed the god who you love have you been there Maybe you've been there for a moment. Maybe you've been there for a season. Maybe that's where you're at today. You may have thought to yourself, no real follower of Jesus would have ever done what I did. And like Peter, it might have brought you to the point of tears. Or it might have brought you to a place where you didn't know what to do, so all you could do, like Peter, was run and hide. Maybe not literally, but at least figuratively speaking. If we're honest, most of us have probably been there at some point in our life and our hearts might have been saying, I know what the Bible says. I know the Bible tells me that Jesus still loves me. I don't doubt that he loves me, but we may be saying, but will he ever trust me again? How could God ever trust and use someone who's done what I've done, who has failed him like I have? Ever feel like you've disqualified yourself because of something that's happened in your life? That's right where Peter was that night. And we're going to come back later in my message. As I told you, we're going to move around a little but We're going to come back later to that night, that fateful night of Peter's disastrous failure. But what I wanted to do, I wanted us to, to recall what took place here, the night before Jesus' death, in order to fully appreciate what was going to take place after his resurrection. Okay, so let's now fast forward back to that passage. We're going back to John 21. Back at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Peter's there with six other disciples. And he says, in verse 3, he says, I'm going out to fish. And the the others say, okay, we're going with you. And they got in their boat, and they all headed out for a whole night long time of fishing. I think it's worth noting that in the Scripture, it didn't say, in verse 3, the disciples went fishing. It said, P- Peter said, I'm going fishing. Now, John could have just written down there, the disciples went fishing, and that would have been very normal. But I believe instead that the Holy Spirit led John to pay special attention and focus in his writing on the fact that it was Peter that said, I'm going fishing. You see, I think that Peter was considering going back to the life he knew before he ever met Jesus. We don't know that for sure, but it merits consideration. He was a fisherman. That was his job. It was what he knew. Fishing was something that Peter could be good at again. No doubt, as he set back out in that boat to fish, Peter was still reeling, no pun, in, no pun intended, um, Peter was still reeling from what he was feeling about denying his friend and his Savior. From the Scriptures, we do know that at this point, Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples twice as a group. But we don't have any indication that Jesus and Peter had spent any one-on-one time together. So it's likely that Peter was still wrestling with what Jesus must have thought about him. And more than likely, he was still plagued by his sense of failure. So he did what many of us would have done. Pursue something he could be good at. Something where he could feel better about himself. So for Peter, he went fishing. He figured that maybe he could do something to add value to the others. Maybe he can go out and bring in in some food for them. Maybe raise a little bit of income. And so they headed out with him. And in the back half of verse 3, it tells us that even though they were all on the boat fishing all night long, it says that they didn't catch any fish. Not a small catch. No catch. Not a single bite. Imagine Peter right now can I do anything well anymore? Now I'm even failing at fishing. I'm sure he was thinking something like, I, I used to be really good at fishing. That's what I did. I mean, I was a pro. He's probably thinking, I don't know what the, uh, what the Israeli equivalent of the pro Bassmasters tour was, but, but Peter would have been on it. That was what he did. He was very good at it. But now he's thinking, I come back to my boat after this, this three-year sabbatical, and I can't even bring in breakfast for my friends. He's probably thinking, great, one more failure, one more humiliation, one more time exposed as less than. But then, then on that shore, something happened. Because that's when Jesus showed up. Jesus shows up like he always does. Not a minute too late and not a minute too early. He shows up. He shows up at the point of our greatest need. Our greatest need is for grace, our greatest need for his presence. That's when Jesus shows up. You've probably experienced this. I hope you're thinking of some situation right now in your life where you thought, right when I needed him, Jesus showed up. Often he's there. We might not always notice. We might not always see because sometimes we're not looking. But Jesus is always faithful to be there when we need him. And just like he showed up on the beach that morning... Right on time. While the disciples, they were still out in their boat. They didn't know it was him. So pick up with me in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now... They were not able to haul it all in because of the huge quantity of fish. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in. Sorry, I repeated myself. Let's stop right there. As they're pulling in this huge catch of fish. If I were one of those disciples right there, if I were Peter or James or John, I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, wait a minute. Something seems very familiar about this. Haven't we been here before? I don't know what the Jewish equivalent of deja vu would be, but that's probably what they were experiencing. Because a little more than three years earlier, they were in a very similar situation. Something very similar happened. Luke 5 records this. Listen to this. From Luke 5, at the very start of Jesus' public ministry, John 21 is the very end of it, but at the very start of his public ministry, it reads this. Luke 5. On one occasion... While the crowds were pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, a.k.a. the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he wasn't yet called Peter, Jesus asked asked Simon to put his boat out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night long and and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come over and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Amazing similarities here between this early encounter between Jesus and his, and his new disciples-to-be and the last one that we read. In both instances, Jesus shows up on the shore, the same lake, after the disciples had gone out fishing all night and had caught nothing. And in both instances, Jesus tells them where to put their nets. And they do it, and they bring in huge hauls of fish. These two scenes that we looked at, serve as bookends for the panorama of Peter's relationship with Jesus. And here in Luke 5, where Jesus is about to first call Peter to be one of his disciples, it's very important to catch how Peter responds to this miracle doer named Jesus. Verse 8, take a look. tells us that when Simon Peter saw it, the miraculous catch of fish, he fell down. He fell at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What did Peter do right there? And why? He fell before Jesus, not just in recognition of Jesus' miraculous power and Jesus' holiness, but he also fell before him in recognition of his own sinfulness. Sinfulness. His own unworthiness, his own guilt, his own humiliation and and fear and, and even shame. And Peter said only one thing to Jesus at that point. He makes just one request. He wanted Jesus to go away. He wanted Jesus to leave him. He wanted Jesus, he asked him to be gone. Why? All I can imagine is that Peter felt so convicted, so so unworthy, that he had to somehow be out of Jesus' presence. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever experienced this in your own guilt that you just thought, I want out of God's presence? But note how Jesus responded to Peter's request. Did Peter get what he wanted? Did Peter get anything close to what he asked? Did Jesus respond to Peter in the way that, that Peter had expected? Did Jesus say, oh, oh, you're right. Yeah, I've been watching you, Peter. You've got quite the reputation. I obviously stepped into the wrong boat here. I'll be out of here before you know it, and I'm going to go on a search for someone a little bit more suitable for me, someone who is someone that I can depend on, someone who is a little more worthy of representing me, someone less sinful, Someone I can use. Someone who will help me effectively launch my ministry. Did Jesus say something like that? If he had, if if that had been Jesus' mindset, he could have said the same thing about me. Or about many of us. But aren't we thankful that that wasn't all at all what Jesus was thinking? What did he say? Look at verse 10. The second half of the verse when it says... And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. From now on, instead of catching fish, Simon, soon to be Peter, you're going to be with me. And because you're with me, and because I'm going to work through you, you're about to go on the greatest fishing adventure you could ever imagine. Because you're going to be fishing for the souls And the hearts and the lives of men and women. The job interview was over. Peter's qualifications, they were met. It was now, Peter's job now was was simply to follow Jesus. And it was Jesus' job that as Peter was following him, to make Peter usable. And verse 11 seals the deal where it tells us, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Peter here in Luke 5 had it started with him finding himself at a point of moral crisis. He even pleaded with Jesus to go away from him. But instead, Jesus says, "No. Nope, no, nope. you see, Simon, I can work with you. You see, Simon, I know your heart. I'm even going to change your name to Peter the Rock. And just wait and see what you can learn from me. And just wait and see how God's going to use you. You're not going to believe it. And the rest of the gospel, the rest of the gospel account, as it unfolds over the next three plus years, tells us how God used Peter and the other disciples to impact lives throughout Israel. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward again those same three plus years back to that fateful night. That night of Jesus' arrest, where Peter, who is now Jesus' go to guy, experiences moral crisis point number two. Crisis point number two. That night when he denied even knowing Jesus. And what made this even more intense was that earlier in the evening, Peter, in front of all the other disciples, said, Hey, Jesus, no matter what happens, I'm willing to go to prison with you, I'm even willing to go to death for you. And yet when everything seemed to uh, come crashing down around him, when Peter saw his hero arrested, he couldn't do it. He cowered. He caved. He failed. And over and over and over with multiple opportunities, he denied even having any relationship at all with Jesus. And at that point, across that dark courtyard, with only the light of the fire to illuminate, he saw Jesus' face. He saw Jesus' eyes looking right back at him. Their eyes fixed. And what do you think Peter saw in Jesus' eyes at that moment? Do you think he saw condemnation? Do you think he saw shock? Maybe some disgust? I don't think so. Maybe sadness. Sadness fed by compassion, plus some genuine love. And regardless of what he saw, Peter's only response at that moment was to leave. He had to get out of the presence of those eyes of Jesus. And so he left. He left the warmth of that courtyard. He went outside into the cold. I'm guessing that Peter had never felt more alone in his entire life. He probably also never felt greater sense of despair over failure than he did, and he wept. There's a pattern for Peter here, isn't there? Have you caught the pattern? Just as Jesus was about to call Peter back at the first time back in Luke 5 to be one of his disciples at that first crisis point, Peter asked Jesus to leave. Jesus wouldn't do it. Jesus wouldn't leave him. And then at crisis point number two, in that courtyard, just a matter of yards away from Jesus, Peter had to leave. He had to get out of the presence of God. And in John 21, where John's gospel account ends, we're going to come full circle to Peter's crisis point number three. Because in John 21, back on that lake, Peter was still dealing with his sense of failure as a disciple. And it was then... At that point, that Jesus shows up. We pick up in verse 7 again, as Jesus once again had miraculously provided this enormous catch of fish, and as they were reeling it in, the scripture tells us that John on that boat looked at the shore and saw that, that shadowy figure, and he realized: look, that's the Lord. And so they headed to shore and the disciples unloaded their fish. More than 150 fish they pulled out of the boat. And on, on that small beach, on this, on this little fire that Jesus had cooked for them and started for them, they cooked breakfast. They made breakfast together and I can just see it. After eating breakfast, I can see Jesus looking over at Peter and saying, hey, Peter, you and I, we need to talk. We need to talk. See, Jesus shows up for all the disciples, but I believe he had special intentions for Peter at that point. So he says, let's go go walking and talking, and, and pick up with me in verse 15 where he says, After they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. You've probably heard this taught before, maybe many times. You've probably heard it said that that Jesus gave Peter three opportunities to profess his love for Jesus as a way of his expressing to Peter his forgiveness and restoration over Peter's threefold denial of Christ. And while I believe that to be true, I think there's something more to it than just that, though. I think Jesus was also driving home a message. Because, yes, of course, Jesus did know that Peter loved him. That's the very reason why I believe that Jesus is very clear in showing Peter that it's going to be Peter's love for Jesus, which is just a response to Jesus' love for Peter. But it's going to be Peter's love for Jesus that's going to be the foundation of Peter's future ministry, his ministry to Jesus' sheep, his ministry to the church. Because the essence of the gospel, the essence of Jesus' truth and grace, the essence of forgiveness was displayed right there on the shore. Did you see it? Did you notice it? Think about it. Let me ask you this. Had Peter done anything at all to deserve the way that Jesus was responding to him? No. By all human accounts and measures of fairness, had Peter disqualified himself from being fit to represent Jesus? Sure he had. Sure he had. If if God was fair, technically speaking, should Jesus have given Peter a leadership role over his church? Not at all. Not after what he had done. If God was simply fair... Peter had disqualified himself from ever being usable to God again. But instead of showing up with fairness, Jesus shows up with grace. And he shows up with truth, just like he shows up for us. I want to show you something. I want to show you something that's a real-life example of the power of resurrection. The power of forgiveness. The power of the gospel of grace and truth. I want to show you a video clip of something you've probably seen fairly recently because it's a a short clip from the funeral service of Billy Graham. And what you're going to see is just a couple minutes of what one of his daughters had to say about her famous father, his daughter Ruth. Take a look and listen.
1: After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it'd be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, Honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent, they had never been divorced. What did they know? So, being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I gonna do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I gonna say to daddy? What was I gonna say to mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. (laughs) And many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God. But he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain, and our hurt, God says, Welcome home.
0: Wow. Let me ask you something. Who is the hero of that story? Is the hero of her story Billy Graham? Or is the hero of her story actually our Lord? Because Billy Graham was only emulating the grace and love of Christ. The Lord that he knew so well. So well, in fact, that he had become himself an agent of grace to many people. In this case, to his own daughter. Now, you may not have Billy Graham for your dad. But you have the same Heavenly Father who also responds to our failures. Who also responds to our remorse. He also responds to our repentance with arms open wide. And it's that embrace, that embrace of grace, that changes us. Are there things in your life that you've done that you thought, God can't use me now, not after I've done that? Things that maybe you've never told anyone before, but things that you know weigh you down in your spiritual life. Perhaps it's something that God wants you to bring before him, to bring to him, to confess, and let him take that that which is ugly to us and let him take it and redeem it and forgive it and and, and bring his resurrection beauty to it because that's what he does. He shows up. And he does that. He shows up with truth and grace. He shows up with resurrection power. And he changes us. And we're never the same. Peter was never the same after that encounter. Just a few weeks later, with the Holy Spirit now empowering him, Peter gets up and shares the gospel message. And 3,000 people came into the faith family that very day, just two weeks after this time of restoration. And the church has never stopped expanding since that day. And all this was possible because of what we celebrated just last week, the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was still dead in his tomb, Peter would have undoubtedly just gone back to fishing and never overcoming that incredible sense of failure and shame until his dying days. But aren't we glad that the tomb's empty? Easter changes everything. We're changed. We have a new purpose. Because of the resurrection, we've been given grace. And because we've been given grace, we are freed up to extend grace to others. Because of the resurrection, we've been forgiven. And because we've been forgiven, we're freed up to forgive others who have hurt us. Because of the resurrection, we've been given the Holy Spirit. And because we've been given the Holy Spirit, we're freed up to live lives empowered by God's Spirit, where we can experience His love, His joy, and His peace, freed from the bondage of sin and freed up to live under the Spirit's control. And because of the resurrection, we've been given the chance to respond to His gospel. And because we've embraced His gospel, we're freed up to be ambassadors of the message of his gospel to those that he puts around us. You see, the resurrection, it frees us. It not only frees us up, but it calls us to a new life. Peter became living proof that anyone can be restored, forgiven, and redeemed. No one's beyond being changed. All because of the resurrection. All because that tomb is empty. And Jesus shows up. And he still shows up. As his church, as the body of Christ, the greatest display that we could ever put on of the celebration of Easter is not necessarily what we saw last week, even though it was wonderful with the the full church and the amazing music, the beautiful flowers and the challenging sermon. The greatest display of our celebration of Easter is when Jesus lives his resurrected life in us. And through us. And when that happens, that's when Jesus shows up. Pray with me. Lord, your word, your word tells us that we are able to love because you first loved us. You did it all. You pursued us when we weren't worth pursuing on our own. You adopted us into your family. Everything you did for us was possible because you went to the cross and then you rose from the, from the grave and you changed our hearts and you changed our lives. Lord, we want to respond to your pursuit of us by being agents of your grace that we would live lives reflecting the power of resurrection. In Christ's name we pray, Amen.